Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Can you believe it's already November? We are already in the season of Thanksgiving, and right now, I'm thankful for you. What a privilege to be invited into your spiritual journey, even if it's only for a few moments. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. Our team here is committed to helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. Dayspring is the kind of church that anyone can call home. It's really more of a family. We're the kind of people who will welcome you with open arms just as you are. Nobody here has their act completely together, so don't think you need to either. This is a safe place to check out the claims of Jesus. It's a safe place to have doubts and questions about spirituality. We like helping people figure out the next steps on their journey. So if you haven't arrived yet, whatever that means for you, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions in the resources section of our website. And now let's join our service. Well, welcome to week two of If Money Talked. And we're talking about everybody's favorite topic at church. Can I hear an amen? Yeah, yeah that was about half-hearted at best. <laughs> I believe it was, uh, it's American poet Richard Armour who once said, that money talks, I'll not deny. I heard it once, it said goodbye. <laughs> I think that sums it up for most of us. Uh, let's be honest, nobody really likes it when the pastor talks about money. We all know where a money sermon is headed, right? We all know that at some point there's going to be a challenge to give. And at the end of today's message, that's going to be true. I'm going to be challenging you to do something that I've challenged myself to do for years and encouraged others to do as well. But before you start thinking, oh no, not that again, I'm going to ask you to flip the script on your entire financial world. I want you to think about money in the exact opposite way our culture thinks about it. Now, I, I know that might be complicated, but I believe in you. I think you can figure this out. You just have to decide to do it first. The how can follow later. But again, just being honest here, I am not the boss of you. Uh, nobody died and put me in charge of you. I have no authority over what you do with any part of your life, let alone your money. But I am going to try to build a persuasive case that gets you to do something that you know you need to do, but just haven't done. Unless this whole Jesus thing is brand new to you. And in that case, this might be the first time you've ever heard this or thought about your money in relation to your faith. At the end of the day, the choice is yours. It's between you and God, and I trust God's work in your life. But you should know, I've never regretted one dime that I've given back to Jesus. I've, I haven't ever heard a story, one story from someone who regretted giving away their money. I've only heard positive stories. I've only heard stories of God's miraculous 
provision in people's lives. I've only heard stories from people who were glad they finally did it. I believe that will be true for you as well. But this message isn't only for people who don't give yet. So those of you uh, who do give regularly, even sacrificially, don't start thinking about what's for lunch. I believe that God has something for you in this message as well. Because there is such a contrast between what the world says about money and what the Bible says about money. I think that many of us would be shocked if our money could actually talk. I think we'd be surprised by the money advice it would give us because it's so countercultural. But for most of us, I don't think we'd be surprised to hear that there is a parallel between what our money would say and what Jesus did say when he talked about money. Uh, as we discovered last week, Jesus talked more about money and wealth and possessions than he did about heaven. And as pastor and author Andy Stanley, who gave us the framework for this series, says, perhaps he talked more about money than heaven because for most people, there is no money would be worse news than there is no heaven. So perhaps Jesus knew where our hearts are, where our interests are. So he leveraged what was most important to us to get our attention. And perhaps Jesus also knew that money never promises more than it can actually deliver. That promise being that as soon as I get a little bit more, I'll finally have enough. But if money could talk and hand out financial advice, it would tell us things that we already know, but have just never connected the dots to see the big picture. So I doubt it was a shock last week when we covered the first thing that money would say, I, this is your money speaking, I can add meaning to your life, but I am not the meaning of your life. Meaning that money becomes most meaningful when we begin to view it as a means to an end that isn't you, that goes beyond you. And one of the questions I asked you to consider last week was, to what ends do you want your life to mean? Ends, not end, because it's always more than one thing. But to be meaningful, your life has to be a means to an end that isn't you. So you should decide what ends will make your life have meaning. And when you answer this question, your money will follow. Your money will become exactly what it was intended to be all along, a tool, a tool to help you accomplish those ends that go beyond you. Now, this week, the second thing our money would tell us if our money could talk is this. Your self-control determines which one of us gets control. Your self-control determines which one of us gets control. Uh, by the way, this isn't about how much you have or don't have. This is true whether you are a have or a have-not. This is about what you do with whatever you have. Your self-control determines who is in control. The financial pressure that many of us, not all, but many of us feel has less to do with uh, how much we make and more to do with what we did with it or our, what we're doing with it. Now, let me repeat that. For most of us, the financial pressure we feel is not about how much we make but what we did with it or are doing with it. Now, here's how I know that's true. I know that's true 
because the financial pressure that we feel would make absolutely zero sense to more than half of the world's population. If you were to sit down with more than half of the world's population and explain how much money you make and how much pressure you feel, they would look at you like you are crazy. And if you think I'm crazy, later on, not right now, go to howrichami.givingwhatwecan.org. Howrichami.givingwhatwecan.org. I know that's a long, uh, a long URL, so I've put it in the message notes, and it's actually a link in the online version of the message notes to make it easy. But navigate there and put how much you make into the al algorithm and see what I mean. Even a person here in the United States working full-time at minimum wage in Oregon, which is $12.75 per hour, even at minimum wage, you are in the top 6% of earners in the world, in the whole world. In the context of the rest of the world, we are ridiculously well-off, ridiculously wealthy. Even minimum wage earners, whether you feel wealthy or not, but because we have no margin, we feel a financial pressure that more than half of the world would say, if I made that much money, all of my dreams would come true. I wouldn't feel any pressure. Instead, we say, if only I had more money. Money says, if only you had more self-control. Because self-control determines who gets control of your life. And if your money could talk, it would say, I'm a much better servant than I am a master because I will always go where you send me. Which brings us to the part where faith and finances intersect. And if you aren't a Christ follower today, you are going to be so glad. At the end of this message, you're going to turn to your Christian friend and say, good luck, buddy. But if you are a Christian, and you listen today, and you decide to take me up on my challenge at the end of the message, I promise that you will thank me later, or somebody else. This is where faith and finances collide. The Apostle Paul talks about this. Most of us already know who he is. Paul steps onto this, the pages of history as Saul, hater of Christians. And then he became one and started using his Roman name as he went around the Mediterranean rim bringing Jesus to the Gentile or non-Jewish world, planting churches wherever he went. He then wrote a bunch of letters to those churches, telling them how to live out their faith. Uh, those letters got put together with some other documents into what we call the Bible, specifically the New Testament part of the Bible. So Paul talks about this tension we feel when it comes to self-control and our stuff. And here's what he says to uh, Christ followers in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He writes, uh, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Uh, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Some translations say walk by the Spirit. Uh, in other words, walk in sync with the Holy Spirit who lives in you, and He will guide you or nudge your conscience. When you surrender your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit will change your conscience over time. Things will begin to bother you that never bothered you before. But that bothering won't go away because the Spirit of God lives you and lives in you and begins to nudge your conscience. And here's the direction he'll nudge you. Paul tells us what this looks, what this internal nudge looks like uh, in, uh, in verse 22, 22 and 23. 
The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. These are the things you want to see more of in your husband or your wife, your in-laws, your boss. You want to see more of this in, if you're dating, you want to see more of this in your boyfriend or your girlfriend. We all want to see more of this in our friends. The Holy Spirit would like you to have more of this fruit too. More love, more joy, more kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and everybody's favorite, let's just all say it together, self-control. The Holy Spirit is going to nudge you in the direction of self-control in all things because everything on this list is at war with our natural appetites, including our appetite for more stuff and our appetite for the security that comes with more money. And God, who loves us more than we could possibly imagine, nudges us toward more self-control because nobody wants to be mastered by an appetite. And all of the natural appetites that war with the fruit of the Holy Spirit are never satisfied. They always want to be fed more. In a group this size, here in the room and watching online, in a group this size, there are people who spent a lot of money trying to get free from an appetite. An appetite that baited them into something they thought would just be a pastime. But when it was too late, you discovered that what you thought was simply a pastime was actually a pathway to your appetite and control of your life. And if I asked you who was in control of your life, you'd say, I am. But it really wouldn't be true. Secretly, you'd know that something else had taken over. If you're a Christian, you know that God doesn't want you to be mastered by an appetite. As a Christ follower, you already have a master. In fact, at the end of uh, the very, uh, the extraordinary parable that we unpacked last week, Jesus came back around and made a very familiar statement. You've probably heard it before, even if you didn't grow up in church. Uh, if you weren't here last week or haven't seen last week's message online, I, I want to encourage you to check it out. It will give you more context than I'm giving you right now, since I already gave it last week. Uh, last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 16. Uh, but if you want to turn or navigate to this week's passage in your Bible or Bible app, go to Matthew chapter 6. Now, Jesus was talking to more than just his closest disciples and larger group of followers. The Pharisees were hanging around on the fridges listening for something that they could use against Jesus. And as he talked, they scoffed because their money was too important to them. We skipped verse 13 in Luke 16 last week. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 6, we read essentially the same words that Luke wrote, but we'll need another verse in a few minutes that isn't in Luke's passage. So we skipped over these particular verses last week because they're important enough for a whole message. So both Matthew and Luke report that Jesus said, by the way, while we're talking about masters and servants and who's going to be your master, and if it's going to be an appetite or something else, Consider this in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. The word for master here in the original Greek is kurios, which means one who is in charge by virtue of ownership. It's usually translated in the New Testament as Lord. You can't have two lords. You can't have two masters. 
This would have resonated with Jesus' audience because they basically lived in a slave culture. They knew firsthand what it meant to have a master. But when we think of the word master, we come at it from an American viewpoint. We tend to think, I don't have any master, not even one, much less two. We'll see. So no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Like, here's your choice. You cannot serve, no one can serve both God and money. And if we were writing this, that's not how we'd end the sentence. We'd say you cannot serve both God and the devil. You cannot serve God and yourself. You can't serve God and fill in the blank. We'd put almost anything else there before we'd use the word money. But the genius of Jesus always gets to the heart of the matter. When all is said and done, you can't serve God and stuff. You can't serve God in the pursuit of wealth. You can't serve God and the pursuit of something that you think will make your life richer if you have more of it. Here's the bottom line. Jesus viewed money and the quest for more as the chief competitor of our hearts. Your money and your quest for more is the chief competitor with him for your heart. His question for us, for, for you and for me is, do you have money or does money have you? To which you might reply, this one is easy. Money doesn't have me because I don't have enough of it to have me. I would like to have so much money that I struggle with it having me. I'd like to have more options so that I could actually see if wealth is a test, as we learned last week, then I'd like to at least try to pass the test. So who is Jesus talking to? Is he only thinking about rich people at this point? Could it be that he's talking to people who get home from work only to find three Amazon Prime boxes waiting for them? Filled with who knows what because you get so many of them you can't remember what you ordered. Could it be that Jesus is talking to people who go to the mall looking for, well, I don't really know what I'm looking for, but I know it, I'll know it when I see it, and then I'll need it. I mean, could it be that he's talking to people like you and me? People who live in the top 5% of people in the entire world. Of course he's talking to everyone, because everyone is at risk of making money their ultimate pursuit, the focus of their lives. The fear of without money can consume our attention just as much as the pressure of too much money. When money becomes the focus, the ultimate concern that it becomes the master. Now, here's something that I really want to bother you. I want it to stick in your craw and bug you until you've wrestled it to the ground. Again, if you aren't a Christian, you're off the hook. You can just enjoy the tension without, you uh, enjoy the tension knowing that what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. But if you are a Christian, think about how much easier it is for you to trust Jesus with your sin. God, I've done it again. Please forgive me in Jesus' name. Amen. Like that was easy. I didn't take much, did it? Hey, you don't even pray that much, but every now and then you tell a real bopper and you pray for God to forgive you and don't let your boss or your wife or your husband find out. God, please don't let me see blue lights behind me. Don't let me get caught. 
You might not pray much at all except when you sin, but isn't it amazing how easy it is to take our failures to God? Or, God, I'm just so lonely. And God, I'm at the end of myself. God, I don't know what to do. My heart is broken. I don't even have words. God, you heard the doctor. You know what he said. Please heal him. Please save my child. Like, you get my point. It is so easy to take our sorrows and our failures and our sin to God. Most of us have even given our eternity to God. We prayed a a prayer that said something to the effect of, Dear God, I want to go to heaven, okay? I've been told that if I ask Jesus to forgive my sins, that he'll come into my heart and save me. Amen. See, it was so easy. You didn't even have to sign on the dotted line. There was no paperwork at all. Brothers and sisters, isn't it amazing how easy it is to give your eternity to God? And at the same time, isn't it amazing how hard it is to give him your money and your stuff? Like, this is what makes Jesus so brilliant. He never asked anyone to give him any money. This wasn't about him getting money. This was about him getting something far more important. You. He was so clear about this. If you haven't surrendered what you have, then you really haven't surrendered. If you haven't given him access to what you own, then he doesn't have access to you. You have opted for the lesser master. And me saying that is creating some tension in some of us right now. And that's good. I want you to wrestle with the tension. If you're feeling tension right now, whether it's a little or a lot, or you're trying to justify, if, if you have any tension, then let me be bold enough to say that the Holy Spirit wants to teach you something today. Jesus would address this, this tension head on. I, I'm not going to avoid it because he wouldn't avoid it. He'd put this tension in terms that we can all understand. He'd say this isn't about either or. He isn't saying that you can either have wealth or follow God. This is about priorities. And this next verse is probably just as familiar uh, as the ones we've already covered today. And out of context, it can mean a hundred different things. And people have used it that way for centuries. But Jesus is still talking about money here. He's still talking about your possessions. Uh, Here's the way forward. If you really want to get this right, if you really want me to be your Lord, If you don't want to be driven by your appetites, if self-control is eating you for lunch, if you think too much about it, worry too much about it, here's the way forward. Here's what he says just a few verses down in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Seek first. Above all else, seek first the kingdom of God. The key to keeping your appetites under control, the key to keeping your pursuit of more and better in the right perspective is to prioritize something else. The key to keeping the pursuit of more or the worry of not enough in the right place, seek first. Like If you want to get this right, if you want to be free, if you want to live a different kind of life, if you want to find control over yourself, control so that the lack of your self-control doesn't get you into trouble, especially in the area of finances, then he says, here's my invitation. Seek my Father's kingdom and his righteousness above all else. 
embrace my father's other's first me second kingdom and his righteousness. And get this, righteousness wasn't a stand-apart holiness. Righteousness wasn't praying all the right kinds of prayers. Righteousness wasn't doing this or doing that. Righteousness was living like Jesus, loving like Jesus, using your freedom to serve one another in love, just like Jesus. That's how he served. He died putting us first. Pursue that kind of kingdom. Live beyond yourself. Operate with that kind of priority system. It's a system where you don't go first. And when you live out of this kingdom, you're going to find more peace, more joy, more purpose, and more meaning. Because he says, in my kingdom, you will become a means to an end that is not you. Now, let's just take this a step further. Picture the scene. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem for the, for the last time. He is headed to Calvary, and he knows it. And he is surrounded by all of these people, these, these followers, and they don't get what's about to happen. They're walking behind Jesus, arguing about who is going to be number two and number three in the kingdom. Because we all know that Jesus is number one. In their minds, they are headed to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to take off his prophet hat and put on his royal crown. And he's going to take his place as the Messiah and he's going to be king. And in this earthly kingdom that he's going to set up, whoever is closest to the king is going to live like a king. They're thinking about life as they know it and they're jockeying for position. Jesus sends all but his closest 12 away to celebrate Passover with their friends and family and pulls, to, pulls the 12 disciples together one last time. And he's like, okay, we've gone over this before, but one more time. That's not how my kingdom operates. Matthew, do you want to be great? Peter, do you want to be great? Andrew, John, and on down the line, of, of course, Jesus. And then he goes over to the corner, and he starts taking off his clothes, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he starts washing and drying feet, one at a time. It's quiet in the room because they're not sure what's going on, and it takes a long time to wash 24 feet. And he finally gets done, and he says, this is how it works in my kingdom. You serve everybody else. You serve each other. If you're willing to serve each other, then you'll be great in my kingdom. This is how it works in the kingdoms of this world. The person at the top, the person with the most, leverages their resources to get more resources. They leverage their power to get more power. They leverage everything they have to the detriment of everybody else. That's how it works on earth, right? Yeah, that's how it works. Why do you think we want to be number two and number three? We want to be at the top of that pyramid. And Jesus says, look at me. That's not how it works in my kingdom. You want to be great in my Father's kingdom, then you have to flip the script and serve. And then he finishes with this, talking about himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for, as a ransom for many. And then the next day, they watched him do exactly that. Mic drop. But this isn't others to the exclusion of you. You've got bills to pay, kids to get through college, 
You haven't had a job for three months, and now you're just trying to catch up. He understands all of that. But look at the last part of that verse again. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. He will give you everything you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and by the way, I love you. And all of these things that you worry about, all of these things that have to get done and paid for and are critical to being able to survive in whatever century we live in, he says they will be given to you as well. This isn't either or, it's one and two. It's first and second. Somebody's kingdom has to come first, and Jesus has invited you into the other's first kingdom. And again, this illustrates the brilliance of Jesus. He knew what we wish we would have known when we were younger. We've been living in this tension our entire lives. He knew that when we put us first, that we eventually come in last. In spite of our best efforts, in a me-first life, we eventually come in last. Because when it's your kingdom, and it's all about you, no matter how hard you try, you have a difficult time saying no to you. Eventually, you aren't mastered by you. Eventually, you get mastered by an appetite or lots of appetites. And nobody wants to be mastered by an appetite. God doesn't want that for you either because you are a created being, created to seek first your creator. And when that gets out of order, our lives become disordered. Now, the good news is that Jesus already told us what to do. We have to put something ahead of us something ahead of me. We have to practically and tangibly put others ahead of us. We have to flip the script. Here's the script we were all born into. I'm going to live and spend what I want on me. I'm going to save a little bit for my future kingdom, and if there is any leftover, I'll give it away. Me first living with leftover giving. If this is all there is to life, then that makes sense. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But, but if Jesus was who he claimed to be, if Matthew was right, if Luke was right, and uh, Mark, and John, and Peter, and Paul, and James, if they were right, and there is more than just this life, then the smartest thing that you could do would be to flip the script so that it becomes seek first living. You give first, save for your kingdom second, and then you live on whatever is left over. You prioritize something over yourself. This is the evidence the measurable, tangible evidence that Jesus is the Lord of over your life, over you, other than you. This is what lordship looks like. In other words, telling your money to where to go is proof that it ain't running the show. Money ain't the boss of me. But there's more, folks. This is a keystone habit. A keystone habit is a habit that affects a lot of other things that aren't directly related. And this is one of them. You get this right, and this impacts all of your finances. You get this right, and ultimately it, it impacts everything, your entire life. It, it will ultimately lead to a deeper, richer, stronger faith and obedience in Christ. When you put him first in tangible and measurable way, it, in a way that feels like it's costing you something, at least at first, when you know that you are making him truly your Lord by saying no to me first and yes to him, when that happens, everything will begin to change. Everything will follow. 
This is a litmus test for those of us who follow Christ. You cannot be a spiritual adult if God doesn't have your money. If he doesn't have your money, he doesn't have you. This, the litmus test of our devotion to God is our willingness to put him before our money and possessions. You can't just include them or factor them in. It has to be God first. And so we've reached the challenge. Now, right now, I'm talking to three groups of people. There are those who don't give. Uh, there are those who give some, but not really regularly or what we would consider a tithe. And then there are uh, those of you who are full-on tithers. So let, let me just start with those of you who don't give or just give some. I want to give you a three-month challenge. It's the middle of November in real time, so maybe three and a half months. Uh, let's just say to March 1st. If you're watching this online at some point in the future, then you figure out what three months looks like from now. Figure out what it looks like for you. If you are a Jesus follower, then because of what Jesus said, even though I'm not the boss of you, I want to challenge you to at least consider this. Maybe even pray about it. For the next three months, I want you to intentionally choose a percentage of your income, and I want you to give it away as soon as you get paid. Whether you're getting bonuses or work on commission or hourly, just pick a percentage that you'll feel. Pick a percentage that makes you go, Egh. it's got to be a percentage that means something. If it doesn't mean something, then you, aren't, uh, you still aren't at the seek first level. Obedience has to cost you something or it won't mean anything. You want it to be a percentage that you'll notice so that when you seek first and he gives you everything you need like he promised in Matthew 6.33, you'll notice. Which, by the way, this is a, an obedience issue first and foremost. Not an I'll give so God will bless me issue. This is, this is a, that would be a, still be a, a me first mentality. But at the same time, you got to start somewhere. This is one area of faith that God gives us permission to test him, to see whether his promises are true or not. This isn't a, a name it and claim it promise. God never promised to make you rich. Or if you give money, then you'll get blessed money in return. You will get the blessing of his provision, but you might just be surprised with what that blessing is. Don't limit your thinking to money. That's not how this works. Don't try to dictate to God how he has to provide. You can give it to Dayspring, or you can give it to some other organization that floats your boat. This isn't about me trying to get you to give more to Dayspring. You give wherever God leads you. If it's Dayspring, great. If it's to combat human trafficking or homelessness or crisis pregnancies, then hallelujah. Just give for three months right off the top before you do anything else. And then here's the second part. This is probably more important than the actual money. Pay attention to the internal tension this creates in you. When you start thinking about this and second-guessing your decision and doubting, I want you just to hit pause and think about what your struggle is about. Listen closely to the, that internal conversation because God is trying to show you something about yourself. And if you're already arguing with me in your mind, start there. Pay attention and discover what your resistance is all about. You owe it to yourself to understand yourself. 
Listen to the excuses you are telling yourself. But give the money anyway. Don't let yourself off the hook. You might discover that this really isn't about money, but it's about something else. You might discover that it is exactly what Jesus said it was. Who is going to be the master of your life? Now, for those of you who are tithers, this is what I want you to think about. It certainly takes faith to write a check for 300 or 500 or 700 or $1,000 a month. Don't get me wrong. There is always faith involved. At the same time, the longer you tithe that amount, whatever it is, the less faith it takes. After you've written a check for $500 for a while, you just know that God is going to meet, meet your needs. He's going to provide. You aren't biting your nails waiting to see how anymore. It's less faith. So if you've been giving at a level that doesn't really require as much faith anymore, then maybe it's time to, to pray about increasing that percentage. You know that God always calls us to deeper faith. He, he always calls us to position ourselves in such a way that we need him, that we are dependent on him, not on our own ability to solve our own problems. Maybe God doesn't show up in your life the way you think he should because you don't really live like you need him. In fact, there's this verse in 2 Thessalonians that I love that drives much about how I think about my life and finances. There, Paul writes, So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Now, one translation says that last sentence like this, may God bless every act of faith. Now, Paul doesn't pray that God will bless the things that don't really take faith anymore. So increase your faith. So for you, I am also challenging you to consider a prayerful increase for three months, just three months. Again, you can give it to whoever you want. It doesn't have to be Dayspring. Just make it an amount that makes you go, <clears throat> and then we'll see if you even miss it. Whatever group you are in right now, I think in three months, if you take me up on this challenge, that you are going to have some stories to tell of God's work in your life. Maybe financially, maybe otherwise. And now I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to make you a deal. Well, really, Dee Dee and I are going to make you a deal. Surprise, honey. <laughs> if you choose to give to Dayspring so we can track it, if in three months you come, at, you come to me and you tell me that God hasn't blessed you at all, that he failed and didn't meet your needs, then I will personally write you a check for the difference between what you were giving before the challenge and what you gave during the challenge. So if, if you're a regular $500 a month giver and you upped it to $600 for three months, and then you came to me and said, Chris, you were wrong. God didn't bless me at all. Then I will write you a personal check for $300, the difference between what you were giving and what you gave for three months. If you've never given to Dayspring at all, and you give $150 a month for three months, and then you come to me and you say, you were wrong, Chris then Didi and I will gladly write you a check for $450. That's 
how much I believe the Word of God. I'll risk my own personal finances on his reputation. The only catch is that you have to give it to Dayspring so we can track it. And if I'm right, I want to hear your stories. At the end of the day, I don't believe that you will be able to say that God didn't bless you. Prove me wrong. Three months. Ready, set, go. Let's pray. Father, because I know so many people in this room and so many people watching online, I know the hearts of my brothers and sisters are that we we want to be the kind of people who prioritize the kingdom of God over all else, including our money. But as we learned last week, most of the time we just aren't as intentional about it, as shrewd as the world around us. We, we don't really think things through the same way, and we don't, really, we don't really consider how our faith intersects with our finances. And so we never really flip the script because we, live, we try to live with our feet in both worlds, which doesn't work, and we know that. Father, I believe with all of my heart, really because your word says it, that you call us to always live and to walk by faith. And the longer you walk by faith and you see what God, uh, the way that you provide and the way you uh, teach us and grow us, the less faith that takes, so the bigger the step needs to be in order for us to have faith. And so God Here's what I pray today, that you would speak to each heart and they would just respond in obedience to you and that you would grow their faith. Grow us up in our faith. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Once again, Thank you for joining us in worship today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. For those of you who make this ministry possible with your financial giving, thank you for your generosity and faithfulness. We know God is doing something in you when you give, but he also does something through you. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may the Spirit of the living God lead you into His truth and blessing.